Good morning. My name's Pam White, and there's a few new faces here since I was here last time. Been gone a couple of weeks, got to have an epic adventure out in Montana, still channeling my inner cowgirl. <clears throat> but I'm not here to tell you about my trip to Montana. I'm here to tell you, or to read scripture. So today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This is the word of God. Okay, let's dig into God's word together today. And we're finishing chapter 3. We're going through a series on the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, a lot of people talk about getting back to the New Testament church. This is one of the first churches. And as Drew mentioned last week, it could be kind of collectively called a hot mess. And really, that hasn't changed over the years uh, very much, has it? And we shouldn't be surprised because God calls people who are very messy, but he attaches himself to them, and he says, you are beautiful in Christ. And then he says, let's grow together into who I have created you to be on this journey toward a time when everything is working as it ought to, a reclaiming of Eden in many ways. And so we have the opportunity to dig into God's word as it was written by Paul to this young church in Corinth that was uh, gathering a lot of people who had a background that was not Christian. Uh, these people didn't grow up in, in a time when they were receiving from fathers, hey, I'm a third generation Christian or fourth or fifth or tenth. So they really were figuring out what it means to walk with Christ along the way. And they were kind of confused as they were taking the culture around them and, and, and putting it into their Christian box. And Paul is saying that box is not actually what it means. Let's open this up and see what it really looks like to walk with the Lord, even in the midst of your mess. And this passage is pretty spectacular because Paul ends up in a place that he ends up in, in, in other texts like Romans chapter 11, I'm always fascinated when Romans chapter 9 begins because you get into some pretty challenging theological concepts like uh, predestination and the justice of God 
and evangelism. It's quite remarkable that Romans chapter 9 can talk about before they were even in the womb, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. And then in Romans 10, how can anybody respond unless they hear the gospel? You've got to go. It's the great missionary ethic. And then in Romans 11, it's all about predestination again. Somehow those things mashing up together in a way that only God can probably understand. But at the end of Romans 11 and 33 through 36, Paul, when he's grappling with these things, just gets caught up in praise. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who could ever, who's ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things? And we maybe got stuck up on the, is it just, is it fair? But Paul just ended up in glory, saying, I don't understand it, but I know he's a God who's worthy of praise. And he gets caught up in one of the greatest doxological statements of praise in the Bible. Right when he's grappling with very human issues, he does the same thing in this passage. It's quite remarkable. Perhaps you saw that. So what I want to do this morning is kind of take a step back, as it were, and and make sure we're not losing sight of the big picture. Paul here has a very high view of the church. He's got a very sober view of man, but he ends up with a grand vision that all things are ours in Christ. So let's start at that last verse so that we can understand the two before it, because this is where he ends up. This is what he says, beginning at the end of verse 21, all things are yours. And that's a plural. He's talking to this gathered group of believers. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. I mean, you can see how he's kind of spinning. He's like, everything belongs to you. You don't have a big enough picture of who God is and what you have because you are in Christ. And he starts thinking about what you have. These people that you're lifting up as somebody you should follow, they're actually your servants. You're not theirs. All things have been given to you. In world, the life, death, present, future, they're all yours. Everything. Your view is too small of what you have in Christ. No wonder in chapter 1 he says, everything's been given you in Christ. Don't you realize what you've inherited? In Christ, you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So Paul is saying, you cannot lose sight of the big picture. And when he starts thinking about that, he ends up in this place that's just spectacular and cosmic, and he says, that belongs to you. And if that belongs to you, then you ought to have a different perspective on the smaller things of life as well. See, this this big cosmic grand vision that he has makes a difference because when you remember that, well, then these divisions you have in your life, they don't seem quite so important. You know, when you, when you have an experience in life that just shakes or rocks you, that gets you back into perspective, all these other things don't seem to matter so much. Have you realized that? Like, as a nation, 9-11, September 11 wasn't that long ago, even so many years later. People can remember where they were, how they felt. And in those days following, did you think as much about whether your neighbor's grass had been properly fertilized? 
did it kind of shift your perspective on what really matters? You know, I, I love going to weddings, but I prefer funerals, which is odd, but I'm in good company. Solomon said it's better to go in the house of mourning than the house of celebration because when you lose somebody, you start thinking about what really matters. And I know for me, if I'm doing a funeral, I go home, I hug my wife a little tighter. It provides a perspective that changes. So now the tiny things that seem so important don't matter as much anymore. They do matter, but not nearly as much. And Paul says, in order for you as this young church to move forward without these divisions, and he says, you got to get the big picture in mind. Now, you probably have seen things like this before. Does anybody know what that is? Oh, what, what is it, Avery? Ding, ding, ding. It's a cantaloupe. What about this? A sponge. Yeah, no. <laughs> it looks like a sponge. A cracker? Believe it or not. Whoops, that is the wrong picture. Well, that's completely anti. Okay, it's actually a bar of chocolate. Didn't show up here. And that one's already spoiled. But because you saw it before. Anyone get it? Yeah, coffee. So much for that. So I'll leave it up here for a little while in case some of you are thinking about how delightful that would be at this exact moment. You've seen these things before where you look at the, the, the small things and you can't see the big picture. And, and then when you see the big picture, now if I were to go back and you'd say, oh, I can see it. And that's really what Paul's doing here in this text. You're getting so hung up on these small things, you don't get the big picture. And because you don't get the big picture, you're not really moving forward well in the small. You can't appreciate it. This is where he ends up at the end of chapter 3. This grand vision that all things are ours in Christ. Now, some of you have seen this illustration before. I stole it from Francis Chan. Uh, but it was... It was helpful because I still remember it, as illustrations do. This is eternity right here. This rope represents eternity. You can see it's going outside. It stretches all the way to the west coast and beyond. It started out there this morning, and, uh, and it goes all the way this way too. So this is, this is kind of a picture of eternity. That's how long eternity is. I, you can't really get the whole thing here too. And this is your life. This, this is your life on the grand scheme of eternity. You're a tiny little piece of blue tape, which is, you, you matter. You're here, you exist. But really, in the scope of eternity, you're kind of small and, and, and tiny. God, God is eternal. He always has been, always, always will be. And your, your life is, oh, it matters. But honestly, you're just here for a little bit, like Psalm 103 said. You kind of wither and, and pass on, and maybe you have a, a heritage or something, but you're forgotten in a few generations, and there's some old pictures, but that's it. <laughs> that's your life. It's not meant to be depressing. It's just it's meant to be inspiring, rather, because Paul is saying you've got to get the bigger picture. If you are in Christ, and Christ is of God who is eternal, then your life here. When you say, especially yes to Christ, this end of the tape, if it's moving forward, continues to stretch for eternity. And, but you have a decision to make, right? At the moment, am I going to attach myself to this and is my eternity with God? Or is it going to be without him? And when you get peel it back and see the big picture of everything too, and you get caught up in that moment, it shifts the way you think about 
the normal things of life, the mundane things of life, it doesn't make them irrelevant. It gives them greater depth and texture. There's a guy named Cornelius Van Til who was an apologist, and he talks about things like apples, and he says, if you don't really believe there's a God, you cannot appreciate an apple in the same way somebody who does believe that does. Because when you bite into that apple, and I know some of you may not like apples, but let's say it's just a juicy, honey crisp apple. If you've ever had one, you like apples. that just like bursts in your mouth and you take it in. It's perfect. You just love it. The refreshing. Mm. And every human can appreciate that. But somebody who's in Christ, in crisis of God, knows he created things, can say, this is a gift tailor-made from God. Every good gift I have comes from God. And I can appreciate the texture, the burst of flavor, the gift it is to me in a completely different sort of way. That's the opportunity that's there. And when I take that away, then I can look at things a little bit differently around me. See, Paul has this grand vision that all things are ours in Christ. All things are yours. And that should affect the way that we conduct our everyday lives. We lose sight of that, don't we? I mean, when 9-11 when happened a while ago, and then there's another thing, and you remember. One of the reasons that we gather as a body of believers is to make sure we don't lose sight of that. To remind ourselves, you're going to start spinning out of control and divide into factions and make things that aren't important important if you don't remember the right perspective. It's, it's another quote that I've mentioned several times, but Eugene Peterson talked about how when you open up the news, sometimes we forget it is a footnote to the scriptures, not the other way around. When you open it up, you look around, you're discouraged. History, it's just a footnote to, the, to what God has revealed. And we can get overwhelmed sometimes, right? And think, ah, oh, the world's spinning out of control. And then we get back into here and say, no, God's got this. That leads, at least for him, as he starts on the front end, he suggests that this isn't just a grand vision, but because of this, Paul has a very high view of the church. In verses 16 to 17, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And that you is a plural, you. So he's talking about the gathered people, the church. He used that language in chapter 1. Those who have been called from darkness into light, the called out ones. He wrote to the Corinthian church, to all the saints who are gathered, and he says, you are God's temple. And if you know the Old Testament, that's a very rich image, right? I mean, when God's people were wandering, he said, build a, a tent, and that's where my presence will be. But you're headed toward a place where we'll have kind of a permanent temple, that place in Jerusalem where my presence will dwell. And it's not as if God can be contained in one place, but he's showing them that there are spaces where his holiness dwells. And you are that space. You're at the gathered body of believers. God's spirit lives in you. His precious place of dwelling. That's a very, what I would call, high view of the church. Now look, we've said the, the bride of Christ is very messy. But this is why the bride's so beautiful. God's spirit lives in you. And he has such a high view of it that if you aim to destroy 
that temple. And here it seems like he doesn't have your own personal handling of your body and morality in mind, but he does later in chapter 6. That's how serious it is. But here it seems like he has in mind people who are creating that kind of faction, that division. If they're destroying that, there's serious consequence for that here. That's how seriously high his view of the church gathered is and his indwelling spirit. You know, people, for example, who worship at the church of St. Mattress down the street in their bedroom. That's not the collective body gathering together. His, his call is for us not to forsake the assembly of gathering together. And I think some of the reason of this is because we start looking at other things and we need other people to remind us. No, look, I've been through that and God sustained me. I need to hear that because otherwise I start losing sight. And that is precious and that is holy. And, of course, the gospel tells us that God's, God's temple dwelling is not confined to, to brick and mortar. And he sends his Holy Spirit into his people. And you are the temple. Now, not only on Sunday morning when we gather together, but when you go out to wherever you happen to be. That's something precious. He has a very high view of the church. He takes it seriously, so should we. And he has here also a really what I would call sober view of man. Uh, do not deceive yourselves, he says in verse 18. If any of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about men. Paul says, look, you have way too high opinion of men. The, 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 the greatest wisdom of a man on a relative scale is just kind of foolish for who God is. C has been teaching through the book of John in our English Bible study and she was talking today or, or on Thursday about John. Uh, you know, there's this passage in, in Luke 7, 28 that refers to he was who he was. And it's pretty remarkable stuff. And he was a, a unique individual. In fact, so unique that he gets this call out in, in the Bible. Listen to what Luke 7, 28 says. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You want to look at all the men in the world? At least according, these are Jesus' words. He says, no one's greater than John. But in the kingdom of God, even the least is greater than him. So in a sense, it's like, okay, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, Paul here has this grand vision of God, this high view of the church, and yet sober view of man as well. Because he sees that in God's kingdom, even the least is so amazingly great. So why are you exalting somebody on this kind of human level? It just doesn't make sense. The equation doesn't line up. Remember, last week, Drew was talking about we are servants of God. Paul was very serious about that. He said, am I trying to win the approval of man? Is my, is my mind consumed with how I 
get praise from people or anything like that. More money, more acceptance, more value from a person. If that were my focus, then I wouldn't be a servant of God anymore. His aim was to be a servant of God. And when you rightly order those things, the other stuff comes. That's a basic position that all the Bible takes. When God is rightly positioned, all these other things you desire sort of come along. And you don't do that so that you can get these things, but it is true. When God's in the right position, these things come. And when we flip that and we start worshiping anything that's created instead of the creator, the Bible has a picture of that called empty cisterns. You, it, it just, it doesn't work. Maybe for a little while it does, but it runs out. But there's one who, when we put God in that place, who's called the living water. These, this water will never run out. It will never be dry. Because he is eternal. And so we serve him. Not finding value in what others think of me or in others themselves, that's wrongly weighted. But when we put God in the place of creator and I am the created, it begins to give us a reminder of the big picture. And things are properly ordered. I have a book here called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Anybody have that problem? Subtitle is Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. It's available if you want to read it. I have. D.A. Carson sums up uh, a lot of what's been said here in this way. There is an exquisite compass of vision here that is tragically lost when all of our Christianity means nothing more than finding fulfillment or seeking personal peace, or worse yet, identifying with the right party or Christian guru. We are gods, and that transforms everything. If we truly understand this, there are no tyrannies left. I highlighted that. This is where Paul ends up. We are gods, and that transforms everything. And when he says there are no more tyrannies left, you are not enslaved now to anything else. Uh, to God and his purposes, which where the spirit of God is, there is what? Freedom. There's not the shackles and the chains. Otherwise, there will always be some measure of tyranny left. We are a slave to something. You know, that's why Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. Either, either you're serving God and money then serves you or the other way around. There are no tyrannies left. If you understand you are gods, no tyrannies left. Freedom. We long for that. And Paul, according to Carson, saying that's what's happening here. We will want all that God has for us, both in this life and in the life to come. And that means we will never reduce the God-sized dimensions of biblical Christianity to all that can be embraced by just one Christian teacher or worker, no matter how able or wise. Factionalism is utter folly. So it's kind of saying, you know what, you look, you're looking kind of foolish with your factionalism. That's not the wisdom of God. Because if you're wrapped up in the wisdom of God, these things are no longer going to control you. And you're not saying, I want to attach myself to a mere man, but to the one perfect man, Christ himself.
It shifts our perspective then when we look at those things and we can hold those a little bit more loosely. For, for those of us who maybe have held up individuals, uh, most of them eventually will fail us on some level at some point. We've seen that happen again and again on all kinds of levels, definitely in the church. Not only does it hurt the church, it impoverishes all those who embrace it, for it cuts them off from the wealth of the heritage that richly belongs to all the children of God. When we don't lose sight of the big picture, let me suggest that we get a renewed perspective in a couple of ways. Just hopefully something that you can apply. There's a lot we could say about this. But I would suggest to you that when you have that big picture in mind, then the confusing equations in life, um, really, you have a new perspective on those. <laughs> and you get a new perspective on what matters most. I, I reference Psalm 73 here. You're probably familiar with it. But here's a person who looked around and he said, I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to walk in God's ways. And everything seems to be going wrong. <laughs> Things aren't going the way they're supposed to. I haven't gotten a raise at work. The, employee, the employer seems to care about other people. Uh, you know, my marriage seems to be failing. My kids aren't walking in God's ways. I don't have a spouse. You know, that's all I've ever prayed for. Since I was young, I've envisioned that, and I don't have that yet. And yet I look at people who are godless, who don't care at all about the things of God, and they've got all that stuff. Now, does that equation seem off to you? I'm following God, not getting the things my heart desires. These people aren't. They seem to be getting everything. And if you ever think that way, you're not alone. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, looks around, says, I don't get it. I'm trying to walk with you, and I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. They don't care, and they're getting everywhere. Now look at that, Psalm 73. I'll just read a portion of that because that's kind of what happens to him and he's trying to scratch his head and think, how do I move forward with that equation? It doesn't make any sense to me. And it, it's confusing. When I tried to understand this in verse 16, it was oppressive to me. It didn't make sense. I was weighed down. This, how can this be? This is wrong. And then what happens in verse 17? Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Some of that was here in, back here, the strong language of the church and destruction and that kind of stuff too. He said, I don't get it, but when I enter the temple the sanctuary of God, and I get this bigger perspective, and I see there's an eternal reality here. All I see is that little piece of blue tape, but you show me what's going to happen. Okay, now I've got the bigger picture in mind. And the equations then look a little bit different. Because this life is so small and so short. But what I'm living for is eternity. That has a different equation. Trust in Christ, walk with him forever. Don't trust in Christ. The best that happens to those people, that's the best that will ever happen to them. 
When you die and breathe your last and the longings of your heart haven't been fulfilled in this world, you will appreciate all the ways that they are even more in the next. When Christ, who is the bride, speaks to you, says, come, be in my presence. I will dwell with you. You will dwell with me. I'll wipe away every single tear. They don't get that, but you do. And you can't understand that without the bigger picture. No wonder Paul ends up here saying, you've got Peter and Cephas and life and death and future and, and you're of Christ and Christ is of God's. You need that perspective, don't you? When you're stuck in this world only. And that's why I suggest camping in a text like this gives us a new re renewed perspective on the confusing equations. Do you have any confusing equations in your life? Any things that just don't seem to make sense? Am I alone in that? No. I'm longing for that resolution. And here we have a picture of it coming. Seems to me that this also gives us a sense of peace when life is out of control. Psalm 46 uh, is one of those psalms where the earth is shaking and everything's coming apart. Uh, maybe that can, can really happen. Certainly it's sometimes we feel like our lives is doing that, are, are doing that. Everything is coming apart. And yet it ends, as you know, by saying, be still and know that I am God. We can be at peace even when everything around us is, is coming undone. Because he is God. And the picture there is that he's got He's got control in a way we never could. And there is an opportunity then to experience a little bit of that shalom, that peace our hearts long for. Not total because things are still falling apart, but there is a day coming when they will be put back together. And the down payment on that was Christ rising from the dead. So in Romans 5, we can have peace with God through Christ. And then in perse persevere through trials. We know that trials develop perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope won't disappoint us because he's poured out his spirit in our hearts. So we have, I would suggest, not only reorienting of confusing equations and being at peace, but the assurance, finally, should be an arrow, not a question mark. Doesn't always translate right. The assurance of complete resolution in the future. I'm going to read Revelation 21. It's a passage you'll be familiar with. Because it's a picture really of total unity and of things being made right. And that's what Paul's talking about. Why are you consumed with being divided? Get the bigger picture. And that ought to come back down to us seeing rightly these relationships. Yes, there's going to be friction but we do it with the, the bigger picture in mind. We work through it. But there is a time, and this is what happens. In, in Revelation 21, such a great section of the scriptures, when he sees a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, the church, the beautiful, messy bride of Christ. Now, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. No more stains, right? You don't, you don't need to worry about those imperfections, the hot messiness that we bring to the table because Christ has dealt with it. And now the dwelling of God is with men. 
and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is sealed, seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. There's a picture of the hope that we have and the final resolution to come when this messy bride of Christ is presented and we dwell in total unity forever. That's what's coming at the end of this, this line here that we get to explore for eternity. How do you get to be a part of that amazing party? It's not because you're a great person. It's because there was somebody, Christ, who was perfect, who humbled himself, became obedient, took the very nature of a man, was found as a servant. And he died on the cross, took on our sin, and rose from the dead again. Attaching ourselves to that hope. We are of Christ. Christ is of God. Hey, we're on the winning team eventually. And you don't need to worry about draft picks and poor performances and injuries and bad coaching. Because he wins. And we're attaching to that team. Now, we have a different perspective. I hope I do when I look at you and see you're purchased by Christ. Precious, a gift to me for us to explore together what he's doing. And that, I think, begins to chip away at the notion that we could be divided by factionalism. Paul says, nah. Remember the big picture. Don't lose sight. Father, I do pray for my own heart, too. I lose sight a lot in the course of a week, in the course of a day. So may we together fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Not only the one who stirred us at one time when we were dead in our sins to look and say, there must be something more, and the answer was Jesus, but also the one who brings it to completion. So this text is about you, but we are of Christ, and Christ is of God. We have all things, so we take a moment to glory in that reality and pray it wouldn't just be a, a concept, but would make a difference about how we look at the person across from us in such a way that there can be no divisiveness. For we are together in Christ, the church, filled with your spirit. Make it so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.